One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.23, Ella, Coronation and Conversion. Last time, we became reacquainted with Elizabeth, better known to her friends as Ella, daughter of Princess Alice of the United Kingdom and Grand Duchess of Hesse and by Rhine. We saw her grow up in a loving family, but suffering the enormous tragedy of losing her youngest sister and mother within a few days of each other during her teenage years. A stunningly beautiful and compassionate woman, she was on the marital wish list of nearly every young nobleman of Europe but in the end made the rather unlikely choice of Grand Duke Sergei of Russia, the brother of the Tsar as her husband, against the wishes of her grandmother, Queen Victoria. When we left her, she was leaving her relatively, for a royal that is, simple upbringing in Darmstadt for the opulence and rampant excessives of life in St. Petersburg as the wife of Romanov. Now, there is an issue that everyone covering Imperial Russian history must grapple with, and that is the issue of dating. There are a myriad of different ways that different cultures and societies work out what the date is. Most are based on religious belief, defined by a single great moment in the history of a faith. So for Christians, it's the birth of Jesus. For Muslims, it's the life of Muhammad, and so on. Indeed, in the 19th century, Christendom had two competing calendars. Today, the world largely follows the Gregorian calendar, a dating system that had been promoted by Pope Gregory XIII in 1582. But it was not always this way. Catholic countries adopted the Gregorian calendar pretty quickly, but the Protestant and Orthodox nations of Europe were not so enthusiastic. The Dutch adopted it in 1700, the British not until 1752, and the Swedes did it in an incredibly complex set of stages throughout the first half of the 19th century. By the time of Ella's marriage to Sergei, though, almost all of Christendom had done it. But Russia had not. They still followed the antiquated Julian calendar, which had been created by Julius Caesar. For complex reasons that I won't get into, the Julian calendar was 13 days behind the Gregorian, 
which means that every historian and podcaster covering this period has to make a decision on which dating system to use, as you essentially have to choose one of them. Since I'm telling a pan-European story here in this series, I will be using the Gregorian dating system to keep everything nice and unified. This is why, when we get to it, I will be saying that the February Revolution happened in March, and the October Revolution happened in November. History is sometimes just inconvenient that way. But before we get going with the episode, I'd just like to thank all my patrons on Patreon that keep this show on the road. If you would like to support this show and join my amazing group of patrons, then go to www.patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. There you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Anything you can give would be much appreciated. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. What do you see when you imagine a royal wedding? If you can, please, for the love of God, don't do this if you're driving, close your eyes and imagine it. What do you see? Perhaps you see a modern one, such as that of Kate and William, Charles and Diana, or Rainier and Grace Kelly, depending on your vintage. Or maybe something from days of old, like one from Tudor England. Or maybe something out of Disney or any number of Hallmark films. Whatever it is, I guarantee you, Ella's wedding to Grand Duke Sergei was more magnificent, more opulent, grander. It was the picture-perfect postcard of what a royal wedding should look like, with gold embossing and fancy paper. It was a whole world away from Darmstadt, I can tell you that. Ella arrived in the Russian capital St. Petersburg with her entire family in June 1884. They had travelled by train and were greeted at the station at Peterhof by Sergei, the Russian Tsar Alexander III, the Tsarina, Marie of Denmark, and the rest of the Romanov family. The Hessians were then guided to a fleet of golden carriages, drawn by horses with immaculately plumed white plumes, gold reins, and driven by men in magnificent liveries. These took them to the Peterhof Palace, a complex built a century and a half before by Peter the Great, who wanted to live in a palace that rivalled Versailles. And that it did. Situated on the Gulf of Finland, it is considered to be the greatest palace in Russia. Outside its 64 fountains, yes, 64, and cascades, were supplied by an aqueduct four kilometres away. Water flowed between upper and lower levels, culminating in the Samson Canal, which flowed out into the sea. The hundreds of interior rooms of the palace were sumptuously decorated with paintings, sculptured and ornaments acquired by the Romanovs from places as far removed as France and China. This was to be one of Ella's homes. One of. As first impressions go, it was an immediate indication that Ella had entered a different world. After spending a fortnight lapping up this luxury, it was time for Ella's grand entrance into St. Petersburg. The carriages that had greeted her on her arrival to Russia now took her to the capital. St. Petersburg was another one of Peter the Great's brainchildren, a city designed to westernise Russia. 
Modelled on Venice, it contained elegant houses owned by the nobility, big wide squares, a panoply of canals, rivers and bridges, and a wealth of fashionable shops, cafes and theatres. And of course its fair share of slums and poor people, but you didn't see those on the advertising poster. At its figurative centre was the Winter Palace, the official residence of the Romanovs. Like Buckingham Palace, only much bigger and grander. This was where Ella was headed for her wedding, specifically the Great Cathedral Church in the Winter Palace. Today it forms part of the State Hermitage Museum, and looks more or less the same as it did on that day. Give it a Google. It looks magnificent. She was wearing the traditional Romanov wedding dress of silver cloth, with a sprig of myrtle blossom and as a tribute to her British heritage. If that all sounds rather surprisingly simple, well that's because I haven't talked about the accessories. These all dated back to the days of Catherine the Great. First came the diamond necklace, then the diamond earrings so heavy that they had to be worn suspended from a wire around her ears, which, as the ceremony progressed, caused her a great deal of pain. Then there was a nuptial golden crown, which was made up of 320 large diamonds and 1,200 smaller ones. And because it's not enough to have one bit of headgear, in front of that she wore a tiara, which itself was composed of more big, heavy diamonds. Then on her shoulders was a fixed heavy velvet mantle, to which was attached a great long train, which had to be supported by six pages. Oh, and if this success was not enough, a gold ten-ruble piece was slipped into her right shoe for good luck, much as you might slip a sixpence in a Christmas pudding. However, this only caused her more pain as she walked down the aisle. It was hell to wear, but awe-inspiring to behold. If ever an outfit was designed to make a statement, it was this one. While this all may seem rather gaudy and excessive to you, certainly does to me, it got rave reviews from onlookers. The Russian Duchess of Edinburgh, who herself had worn the same outfit to her own wedding to Queen Victoria's son, wrote, quote, My new sister-in-law looked, and looks, lovely. The heavy marriage dress suited her to perfection. After being greeted at the door by the Metropolitan of St. Petersburg, himself richly dressed in golden vestments, he led Ella to her betrothed for a start of a very long ceremony. I will summarise it relatively quickly. First of all, he announced three times that the bride was marrying the groom, and vice versa. Then he placed wedding rings on the third finger of both of their right hands, and then the bride and groom repeated this for each other. They then moved into the centre of the church, whereupon there was a good deal of prayer and exhortation. And then there came the crowning, bet you weren't expecting that, where they were each blessed with crowns symbolising the martyrs and witnesses of Christ. Then there came that infamous bit of patriarchal propaganda from St Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where Ella was reminded that she must be subject to her husband, as the church is subject to Christ. Then there was more religious ceremony, including the taking of communion, and then it was all over. Or it would have been if Ella weren't a Lutheran. Unfortunately, she was, which meant that everyone then had to traipse their way over to the Alexander Hall, where a Protestant ceremony was performed. Finally, after this marathon four-hour-long hybrid wedding ceremony was finally over, the wedding party was able to retire for dinner in the Great Hall, followed by dancing. The whole thing must have been utterly exhausting, 
but according to attendees, Ella bore up incredibly well. At 9pm, they climbed back into their gold carriage and to their main residence in the city, the Sergievsky Palace on the banks of the Fontanka River. There they were met by the Tsar and Tsarina, who had gone on ahead, who offered them bread and salt. And just when you thought it was all over, they had to have yet another meal to finish up the day. I bet they slept like logs after all that. Over the next few days, Ella's family said their goodbyes before departing. The woman that they were leaving was not just now a married woman, she had a new name. As you may know, Russia has a very set system of naming. Your parents didn't get to choose what you were called, there were rules. First came your given name, and you had a free choice in that. Then came the patronymic, or your father's name. And finally, your family name, or surname. Ella got to keep her first name, unlike her mother-in-law, who had to change Dagmar to Marie to make it sound more Russian. And of course, as a royal, she didn't really have a surname. This left the patronymic. For this, she followed the example of her fellow foreign Romanov brides, and took the name Fyodorovna. This was not for her own father, but for the 4th century saint Theodore, who it is said appeared to inspire Russian forces before battling the Mongols, and who was a favourite saint of the Romanovs. After seeing her family off, Sergei took Ella to Moscow, the religious capital of Imperial Russia. The two were both intensely religious, and so it shouldn't be a surprise that they decided to go on pilgrimage before their honeymoon. He took her to the Trinity Monastery of St. Sergius, the man for whom Sergei was named. It was the first cloister in Russian history, and considered to be the spiritual centre of Russian orthodoxy. Forget everything that you're imagining about what a monastery would look like. This place is massive, and looks more like a fairy tale eastern castle than a house of worship. The majesty and mysticism of this and other monasteries that Ella visited on this pilgrimage had a profound effect on her, and started her on a road that would lead to her converting. After this, they spent several happy months of proper honeymoon at Sergei's favourite place in the whole world, his massive country escape Alinskoya, just outside of Moscow. There they entertained guests and got to know each other better. They would take walks together to gather flowers and produce from the grounds, and Ella took the opportunity to practice her Russian, determined to be as completely fluent as quickly as possible. One of their first guests was the celebrated Russian poet Konstantin Konstantinovich, better known by his initials K.R. He was utterly enraptured by Ella, describing her as, quote, So feminine, her beauty is something I will never tire of. Her eyes are extraordinarily beautifully defined, and her look is so calm and gentle. Despite her gentle nature and her shyness, one senses in her a certain sense of self-assurance, a recognition of her own strength. Being a poet, he also dedicated a poem to her. I look at you in constant admiration. No words can tell you how beautiful you are. And surely this observable perfection is equal to the goodness of your heart. A gentle meekness, sight of secret sorrow, hides deeply in the bottom of your eyes. Like an angel, you are pure, serene, a true perfection. Like a woman, you are loving, diffident, and kind. While not all of Sergei's friends and family were quite as eloquent in their praises, they all loved and were to an extent enraptured by Ella, 
a very different reaction to the one that her sister would be subjected to when she arrived in Russia. But her greatest admirer was still her husband, who wrote to her father in this first summer of love, quote, I should like to tell you how much I bless the good Lord every day for my happiness. Ella is not simply a woman, she is an angel in every respect. I often ask myself if I am worthy of her. If there were many women like her, the earth would be a paradise. Ella was now officially married to Sergei. But of course, it was only now that she could finally get to know who it was that she was now bonded to for life. And it seems only right that I tell you now as well. Sergei had been born in 1857 as the seventh of eight children of Tsar Alexander II and his wife Marie of Hesse. Alexander II was also known as Alexander the Liberator because four years after his son was born, he abolished serfdom a social and legal code that tied Russian peasants to the land, a system that Western Europe had outgrown by the end of the Middle Ages. Alexander was a great reformer, not only freeing the serfs, but also making judicial and political reforms, such as ending corporal punishment as a sentence, bringing in elected judges, and a form of democratic local government. However, the pace of reform was slowed in 1866, when he became subject to the first of many assassination attempts. After this, he became increasingly reactionary, which only seemed to encourage the development of anarchist and socialist cells looking to kill him, which, in turn, led to more oppression, a really vicious cycle of violence. These are the lessons that Sergei and his brothers learned as they grew up in the increasingly isolated Russian royal court. If you give the revolutionaries an inch, they'll try and take your head. Sergei found his intense religious faith following the tragic early death of his eldest brother, the Tsarevich Nikolai, from cerebrospinal meningitis. His grief led him to find solace in the church, especially at the Trinity Monastery of St. Sergius, where he would later bring his wife Ella. His education was largely led by churchmen, including one ultra-conservative teacher who instilled in Sergei and his brothers of the inviolability of a trinity of God, Russia, and autocracy. That absolute rule by the Tsar was as nature and God intended it, and must be defended and preserved at all costs. Other teachers provoked his love of art, literature, and history, things that would eventually cause Ella to find that she and him had a great deal in common. He saw military action for the first time in the Russo-Turkish War in 1877, serving under his brother Alexander in Romania, and by all accounts was a competent and gallant officer, being awarded the Order of St. George for bravery. He was abroad in Italy when news of his father's assassination broke, an event that only cemented his ultra-conservative view on the world. In his mind, and that of many of his contemporaries, his father had been killed because he had made concessions, and reforms that, rather than satisfying the masses, only encouraged them to violence and revolution. Only through a firm hand and an iron fist when necessary could stability be restored and maintained. Under his brother's rule, Sergei largely focused on his military career, becoming commander of the elite Preobrazhensky lifeguards, as well as becoming an honorary commander of a number of other formations. 
This military background, coupled with being a very tall man, led many to see him as being a very stiff, cold and proud figure, aloof and guarded. And while this was undoubtedly true, it also obscured a rather insecure and shy interior to the man. It was not a side to him that many saw, but it was the one that made Ella sure that he was the man for her. This air of mystery around him led rumours to circulate around his conduct, specifically around his sexuality. There were stories of Sergei having sex with fellow officers in his guard regiment, as well as with officer cadets around the royal palaces. Indeed, these rumours were so prevalent that they reached the ears of Queen Victoria. The British ambassador to Russia wrote that, quote, The Grand Duke's reputation has long been assailed by rumours of such a nature as, if true, would make his marriage to any woman, but above all with one so young, innocent and beautiful, hardly tolerable. The accusations were openly made in all classes of Russian society and commonly believed. On the other hand, proof in such cases was seldom possible. He did, though, add the caveat that, quote, there was no scandal-loving society in the world than Russia. Were these rumours true? Well, no reliable witnesses have ever come forward to attest to their veracity, and his private papers were destroyed after his death, meaning that all we have is speculation. Homosexual behaviour was technically punishable in Imperial Russia by death, and as an intensely religious man, Sergei was publicly highly intolerant of it. But then again, he'd hardly be the first closeted gay man to act in that way. He was also rather unpopular in higher society, largely because he shunned it, thinking it pretentious and superficial, and spent a great deal of time with his fellow officers. It's hardly surprising then that rumours would swirl, his greatest critic, at least in noble circles, was his cousin, Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich, better known as Sandro. He was one of the few Romanovs to survive the revolution, and reserved special blame for Sergei in causing it. In his autobiography, written in exile in Paris, he describes Sergei thusly, quote, Try as I will, I cannot find a single redeeming feature in Sergei's character a very poor officer, and a complete ignoramus in administrative affairs. He was obstinate, arrogant, disagreeable, flaunting his many peculiarities in the face of the entire nation, providing the enemies of the regime with inexhaustible material for calumnies and libels. As a side note, I'm not sure that Sandra ever tried that hard to find those redeeming features. Although he was clearly no fond of Sergei, like everyone else, Sandra was very fond of Ella, writing, quote, As though to accentuate his repugnant personality on the background of virtue, he married Grand Duchess Elizabeth. A rare beauty, a fine mind, a delicate sense of humour, the patience of an angel and a noble heart. Such were the qualities of this remarkable woman. I would have given ten years of my life not to see her go down the aisle with arrogant Sergei. While stories of his homosexual behaviour, while likely true, are unproven, there is no doubting his legendary temper. His friend, the poet K.R., wrote, quote, Sergei does not like anyone to disagree with him. He gets annoyed and loses his capacity to think coolly and logically. No one was safe from Sergei's pride and sharp tongue, not even Ella. Her niece, Queen Marie of Edinburgh, recalled, quote, Uncle Serge was often abrupt and severe with her, as he was with everyone. 
Being young and innocent when she married him, he had something of the schoolmaster attitude towards her, and I can see the adorable blush that would suffuse her cheeks when he reproved her. And he did this often, no matter where or before whom. Backing up this story is the French ambassador to Russia, who wrote in a report, quote, One day, after a violent outburst on the part of the Grand Duke, old Prince B, who had witnessed the scene, offered the young Grand Duchess's sympathy. She seemed surprised and answered in a frank tone, I am not to be pitied. People may say what they like, but I am happy because I am dearly loved. This wasn't for show. For all of his flaws as a husband, and frankly as a human, Ella never wavered from loving her husband. Though he could fly off the handle, when he didn't he was unfailingly gentle and kind. He was despised by many members of the royal family, but loved by a great many as well, none more than Ella herself. Of all of Sergei's relatives, Ella was closest to his brother Alexander III and his wife Marie, or Sasha and Minnie as they were known in the family. She and the Empress loved to paint together in the afternoons, play tennis, go ice skating and spend time with their children. She was an absolute hit with the Tsar's kids, especially the heir Nicholas or Nicky, who called her his little aunt. The amount of time that she spent around the children brought into stark focus the fact that, a few years into her marriage to Sergei, she had not become pregnant. Sergei wasn't going to inherit the throne, so there was no particular pressure on that front, but it was still very much expected that she would have children. And so their absence only amplified rumours that their marriage was failing, that Sergei's interests were not in the fairer sex. Queen Victoria wrote to Ella's sister Victoria, quote, Ella's constant speaking of her happiness I don't quite like. When people are very happy, they don't require to tell others of it. She does seem to have been alone within Ella's family in believing her to be unhappy with Sergei. Everyone else was convinced by her frequent protestations of the fact. Indeed, she had the opportunity to reassure her grandmother herself in 1887, when she and Sergei had the honour of representing Russia at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. I've talked about this event numerous times, and will do so again. Everyone who was anyone was there. Well, except the Tsar, I guess. And Ella was right in the centre of it, including being a part of the great carriage procession that travelled to Westminster Abbey. She and Sergei stayed with her uncle and sister-in-law, Alfred and Marie of Edinburgh, and they reported to the Queen that they were as happy as Ella had been relating. Another honour bestowed upon Ella and Sergei by the Tsar was an opportunity to visit the Holy Land and attend the consecration of the Church of Mary Magdalene on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. This church was built in the memory of Sergei's beloved mother and Ella's great-aunt, Empress Marie, and the trip provided the opportunity of a lifetime for Ella. En route, she was entertained by the Ottoman Sultan in Constantinople and visited Hagia Sophia, formerly the greatest church in Christendom, which was then a mosque, which she described as being, quote, something quite marvellously imposing. The Russian party travelled on to Ephesus and Beirut before finally arriving in Jerusalem. Their first point of call was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built on the spot where Jesus is believed to have been crucified and resurrected. As a deeply religious woman, Ella was deeply moved by this holiest of places. She wrote to her brother of her, quote, intense joy, telling him, quote, how happy you would also be to see all these holy places one learns to love from tender infancy. 
you cannot imagine what a profound impression it makes when entering the Holy Sepulchre. After this, they saw all the traditional holy sites, including Temple Mount, Abraham's tomb, and the sites of Jesus' miracles. The trip culminated with the consecration of the new church. It was built in the old traditional Muscovite style, including seven gold onion domes. She herself had contributed to the design and decoration of the church, commissioning an artist to paint several huge canvases depicting scenes from Mary Magdalene's life. It has been claimed that this visit to the Holy Land with her husband, and her involvement in the design, construction and consecration of this Orthodox church, was the moment that she decided to begin her conversion to her husband's faith. The year 1889 saw two romances that would go on to profoundly affect Ella's life. The first was that of her sister Alex with Sergei's nephew, the Tsarevich Nikki. I'm not going to talk an awful lot about this here, as I'll be saving it for the series on Alex, but suffice it to say that Ella was massively involved in making that match come about. The two of them had met at her wedding to Sergei, and in 1889, Alex had come along with her father and brother to St. Petersburg to visit Ella. Alex and Nikki got the chance on this visit to get to know each other, and though there was no tremendous enthusiasm, either in Russia or Darmstadt for the match, the two of them didn't care. They were falling deeply in love. As you might expect, Queen Victoria was also very much against this match. She wanted Alex to marry her grandson, Prince Eddie, the eldest son of the Prince of Wales. But Ella opposed this for two reasons. First, Eddie was a gigantic waste of space. And second, she loved the idea of having her sister not only being in Russia, but with her having the opportunity to one day become the Tsarina. She knew that she was going to have to be up against the full force of Victoria's opposition if she was going to make this happen, and so wrote the following to her brother Ernie. Quote, Alex is sure to speak to you about a certain person and tell you all I wrote to her. Give her the courage and be yourself, very careful what you say in your conversation with Grandma. It will be very much better not to speak about Pelly, that was their pet name for Nikki. Or if she does, tell her there had been nothing between them. But if she wishes to know frankly your opinion on Pelly, tell what a perfect creature in every way he is. And that he is adored by all and deserves this lovely being. Give an idea of the happy family life so that Grandmama's prejudices may be lessened. Ella had herself gone up against Victoria when she had wanted to marry and knew how difficult it was to talk her around. This advice that she was giving Ernie was based on hard-earned experience and was sage indeed. The other romance was between Sergei's younger brother Paul and Princess Alexandra of Greece, the sister of Constantine I and niece of Ella and Sergei's friend K.R. Paul was very close to Sergei and Alexandra turned into another sister for Ella. Their friendship particularly blossomed during an influenza outbreak later that year where both Sergei and Paul fell sick. Alexandra was pregnant at the time, and Ella took her out to the opera every night in an attempt to take her mind off her dreadfully ill new husband. Ella knew from bitter experience what it was like to see one's entire family struck down with disease, and so was determined to prevent her new friend from both catching it and from becoming depressed because of it. Both of their husbands survived the academic, and Alexandra would go on to give birth to a healthy daughter called Maria. 
Indeed, most of Ella's friends were giving birth to children at the time. K.R.'s wife that year had no fewer than two kids, and her sisters Victoria and Irene both had young families. Ella loved all her family and friends' children, and spent a great deal of time with them. But this only threw into stark relief the fact that she and Sergei didn't have any. Indeed, they would have no children at all during their marriage. The question of why that is the case will never be answered. Some have speculated that the marriage was never in fact consummated, that Sergei was so profoundly homosexual that he couldn't even have sex with a woman. That seems deeply unlikely. For one thing, quite unusually for the time, Ella and Sergei shared a bed, and if he was that uncomfortable around being intimate with his wife, then it would be very unlikely that they would be doing that. It seems far more likely to me that, for whatever reason, one or both of them were simply unable to have children. It doesn't appear to have been a particular concern to either. Ella was quite happy to love her friend's kids, and Sergei was content to leave his fortune to the children of his brother Paul. Indeed, Ella's greater focus around this time surrounded her conversion to the Russian Orthodox faith. This was something with which she profoundly struggled, as you can see in this letter that she wrote to the Tsarevich Nikki. Quote, Serge, for the first time, spoke to his religion about me, and I said then that I should like to know it more thoroughly. That summer I read lots with him, but then came again many months of doubt and worries. I always wished to put it off altogether, although at the bottom of my heart I already belonged to your religion. Alas, I am very bad, and did not have enough strength, enough faith. I continued in outward forms and before the world to be a Protestant, when my soul already belonged to the Orthodox faith. It was lying before God and man, and a very great sin, and I do so heartily repent. Ella was a deeply Christian woman, and so took the notion of conversion very seriously. She would be abandoning the denomination of her family, losing yet another link with her dearly departed mother. She also knew that her family in Germany and the UK would be very upset, but that didn't concern her as much as she worried that they would blame Sergei for it. Remember that Sergei had a reputation for being a bit of a brute, and it wouldn't be hard to believe that a man of his temper and religious fervour had forced his wife to convert to his faith. Ella well knew this, and was keen to disabuse them of that notion, she wrote to her brother to let her family, quote, scream about me, but only never say a word against my Sergei. Take his part above all. The next part she underlines for emphasis, quote, tell them I adore him and also my new country, so have now learned to love their religion. Do not think that only earthly love has brought me to this conclusion. Although I felt how Serge longed for this moment, and I often knew he must suffer in consequence. It is dreadful torturing to feel how many I have made suffer. First my own beloved husband, and now you all, darlings. Yet then I felt I was in the right before God's eyes. Yes, I am now in changing. Above all, one's conscience must be pure and true. To her father, she wrote, quote, I beg you for your blessings. You must have remarked what deep reverence I have for the religion here when you came last. Since over a year and a half, I have been thinking and reading and praying to God to show me the right way. I have come to the conclusion that only in their religion can I find all the true and strong faith one must have in God to be a good Christian. It will be a sin to remain as I am now, belonging to one church for the outward world, and inwardly praying, believing in my husband's belief. 
This is only part of a long and heartfelt letter to her father Louis, begging for his blessing, but she never really got it. The Grand Duke was shocked and hurt by his daughter's decision to, in his eyes, abandon her faith and heritage for that of her husband. Indeed, he was in such a hurry to reply to his daughter that he wrote back to her in pencil rather than in the more time-consuming pen and ink. He urged her to reconsider, fearing that she was being taken in and initiated into a church that she didn't understand and wasn't true to the teachings of Christ. He also feared what her mother Alice would have thought. Quote, My God, what would Mama say? I cannot think of this with peace in my heart. It shocks me so very much. Frankly, the letter, while well-meaning, rather exposes Louis's own prejudices and misunderstandings about Russian orthodoxy, but does very much show what Ella was up against. He was, though, a good man, and so wrote, quote, As it is not your duty to convert, it makes me uncomfortable. As it is not expected of you, I must consider it my duty to advise you of this. But should you consider it to be your duty, I would forgive you. He wasn't the only one in her family to express shock and horror at her decision, but there were a few that backed her, among them her siblings Ernie and Irene. Rather surprisingly, Queen Victoria also expressed her support. We sadly don't have the letter, but we do have Ella's reply to her, which ran to over seven pages of intense gratitude. She wrote, quote, "'You cannot think how intensely and deeply touched I was by all you say,' I was so afraid you might not understand this step, and the comforting joy your dear lines gave me I shall never forget. Her formal conversion took place at Easter, at the chapel in their palace in St. Petersburg. She took slash kept the name of Elizabeth as an Orthodox Christian, but instead of being named for St. Elizabeth of Hungary, as she had been before, she was now named in honour of the mother of St. John the Baptist, and was presented with an icon depicting her. A Russian princess who attended the ceremony described it as being a very moving moment, one pregnant with meaning, love and devotion. She converted for her husband, of that there can be no doubt. She would never have become an Orthodox Christian had she not married a Russian. But there is equally little doubt in my mind that this was her choice. As a woman of deep faith, she saw conversion as the best way of staying close to God in a country and a family that kept a different way of venerating Christ than she. To her, this was a difficult yet rational choice, and one that she would never regret. The French ambassador wrote in his memoirs, quote, She adopted the creed of the Russian church with all her soul. No conversion was ever more sincere, thorough or complete. All her instincts for dreams and emotion further in tenderness, suddenly found his outlet in the mysterious rites and pomp and pageantry of orthodoxy. Her piety soared to amazing levels. She knew heights and depths of existence that she had never even suspected. And it is here, on Ella's conversion, that I will leave you for this week. Next time, Ella will move with her husband to Moscow, where he will become notorious as his governor. Her faith in, and love for, Sergei, was about to be put to the ultimate test. 